today on a special Colorado Matters. Racism and disparity are deeply embedded in the U.S. economy. CPR's Joanne Allen talks with author and entrepreneur Wes Moore about the intersection between racism and poverty. This is a nation that was built on a racial hierarchy, right? This is a nation that was built on stolen land with stolen labor. Moore wrote Five Days, The Fiery Reckoning of an American City, and he's the CEO of nonprofit The Robin Hood Foundation. Being able to acknowledge our history does not make us weak. Actually, it makes us strong. And so I feel like it's important for the United States to be able to wrestle with its history and understand that with that, that gives us a path to understand how then do we move forward collectively. Every day on CPR News, you hear thoughtful, accurate, and thorough reporting on politics, government, and breaking news. You'll rely on CPR to keep you informed and get all sides of the issues. Hi, I'm Benta Brooklyn. Today, I'm asking you to make a donation to strengthen and sustain the journalism that matters to you. Please donate today at CPR.org. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Protests over the deadly police shooting of Dante Wright on Sunday have gripped Minnesota this week. Just miles away, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is on trial for the murder of George Floyd. Today on a special episode of Colorado Matters, a discussion hosted by the Vail Symposium about the deep roots of racism and inequality in the United States. CPR's Joanne Allen talks with author and entrepreneur Wes Moore. Moore is the CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, a charitable organization that works to address poverty. He's also written several books, including Five Days, The Fiery Reckoning of an American City, and The Other West Moore, which examines how life can take very different paths for two kids with the same name. The discussion was recorded last Thursday through the Vail Symposium. I think we're going to start off with you just telling us a little bit about Robin Hood, what you guys have done, some incredible work I know in the last year with covid So let's talk a little bit about that. We'll talk a little bit about your books and then get into some real issues and and questions around race. Yeah. Um, So, you know, yeah, Robin Hood is a a, a, a 32-year-old organization. And first, again, thank you for, uh, you know, thank you for for this opportunity. And it's a joy to be in conversation with you. And, uh, you know, we're we're a 32-year-old organization with an exclusive focus on fighting poverty. And uh, was started initially with about $40,000 of grants of finding and funding and, and, and building when necessary strong organizations. But now that we are 32 years old, we have allocated just shy of $4 billion into the poverty fight. And that's funding everything from education to housing, to transportation, to mental, physical health, early childhood, criminal justice reform, everywhere where poverty is either the cause or the consequence, we will find and we will fund. But we have had moments in our society, and I, and I say this, you know, I'm a, I'm a native Marylander, and actually I'm, I'm coming to you from Baltimore, which is my home, but our offices are actually headquartered in New York. Um, and there have been moments when the communities um, that we serve have been dealt significant blows, obviously after 9-11 and the horrors of 9-11, Hurricane Sandy and the impact that that had on, on the New York metropolitan area, and then also now COVID-19. And we relaunched our relief fund over the process of the past, over the past 10 months, 
with a focus on getting capital and then allocating it out quickly. Uh, in, in, in our COVID-19 fund alone, we've now uh, resourced about $80 million during that time period and have all basically all gone out the door, uh, all focusing on strengthening the social service sector and then also really focusing on emergency cash assistance and just getting people cash and capital at a time when they needed it most. And you talk about what how that relates to race, the reality is, is that you cannot talk about poverty or economic injustice without talking about the role that race plays. Race is still the single greatest predictor of life outcomes that we have in our society. Everything from educational attainment to wealth, to income, to maternal mortality. It's race that is the predominant indicator. And so I think for our work and for our mission, it's impossible to go through that with also being able to dissect and understand and build out why this is something that is so crucial for us to be able to, as a country, understand and do more to be able to address. Yeah, race is a thing no matter what you're talking about. I mean, uh, various issues as you just spoke of. Tell me, why did you write the book Five Days? Well, you know, I think uh, as, a, as, a, as a Baltimore resident, uh, I attended Freddie Gray's funeral. And it was interesting because uh, that was the first funeral that I've ever attended of someone who I did not know while they were living. And I felt like that was part of the problem, was that hardly anyone knew Freddie while he was alive, particularly at least all these people who were inside the church there to mourn his, his death. Um, and that was something that was really heartbreaking to me, where it highlighted the disparity. It highlighted the fact that, that we now had at that time thousands of people who went to go see him laid to rest. But the truth is, is that the amount of people who saw him during his life was so limited. Mm. You know, this is a 25 year old young man who made eye contact with police and ran. And that was the crime that they wanted to bust him on. Because that, making eye contact with police in certain neighborhoods, is enough to justify probable cause. When they made eye contact with him and he ran and they arrested him, uh, an hour after he was arrested, he was in a coma. And a week after he was placed in a coma, he died. And so what I did was, and what I wanted to do with five days, was really be able, was really be able to have a clear understanding through the eyes of eight different people, all who took a different walk of life. One was a police officer who grew up in West Baltimore. One person was the, uh, a, the city, a member of the city council who grew up in the area. One was a basketball star turned protester. One was the son of the owner of the Baltimore Orioles. So all people who come from different strata and different, different places and different walks of life who all had different perspectives on that moment but all whose perspective was important for us to be able to understand, if you want to understand, not just that time and what happened to Freddie, mm -hmm. but also everything else that was surrounding that time and the reality of how, the in, how this injustice and how race continues to show itself and play itself throughout a variety of different ways and mechanisms. One of your other books is called The Other West Moore. And I have to admit... And I don't know if this happens to other, quote, successful black people, those of us who've been able to get the education and get the job opportunities and then, you know, work and become 
uh, good at what we do, I've often wondered if there's another person who is sort of parallel to me, but who ended up more like the other Wes Moore did. So I, I was really pleased that you wrote that book. Thank you. Thank you. No, and honestly, it was one of these things where when I first went through the process, I first learned about Wes through through wanted posters. I first learned about it because my mom called me and said, you know, there are wanted posters in your neighborhood. And I was like, okay, but I don't know why that justifies the phone call. And she's like, because they have your name on you. Mm. And that was how I first learned about the other Wes Moore. And the more I learned about him, the more I learned about his story, the more I learned about the crime that he was eventually convicted of, uh, the more I learned how much more we had in common than just our names. You know, the fact that we are, you know, living in the same area at that time, we were around the same age, we both grew up in single parent households um, for different reasons, but we both grew up in single parent households. Uh, we both had academic and disciplinary troubles growing up. And so I wanted to ask the question, say, so what is it that creates this split? amongst two kids where at the same time when I was getting ready to head off to England on a scholarship, he was getting ready to head off to a maximum security facility for the remainder of his life. And so those were all things that I think I, I, wanted, to, uh, I wanted to think through and really push out with this book because I felt like in society, we're just far too quick to either congratulate or castigate without ever having any real understanding of the situations and the backgrounds and the experiences of the people who fall into either one of those two categories. Yeah, everybody has a story. And it's usually from that story, you, you can draw a direct line to where they are today. If you know all of the things that happened to them along the way. And, you know, I can say you, you and I were lucky. <laughs> you know, I mean, not only that, but we had devoted uh, parents and stuff, but still, devoted mothers, um, um, we, were, we, were, we got the opportunities that the other Wes Moores and the other Joanne Allens didn't necessarily have. And that makes me angry. I, um, you know, I, I just, I, I have a hard time with that sometimes. And so where I'm at right now is the thing of what can I do as a person, as an individual, to promote racial justice, other than just talking about it on the radio like I do, you know, other than just giving news stories. What can people do right now? What, what would you suggest? You know, I, I think some of the things that people can do is, you know, first we have to recognize and understand the fact that this is, you know, this is not hyperbole. Um, you know, it's not exaggeration. It's not people making things up. Um, that there is a, there is a history that we have to contend with and that we cannot just say, well, that was so long ago. Uh, you know, this country, the reality of this of the nation is that this is a nation that was built on a racial hierarchy, right? This is a nation that was built on stolen land with stolen labor. And, and we have to be able to recognize how, what that means and how it shows itself and the damages and the difficulties for it. You know, we just recently launched an initiative, for example, called 90 to zero which focuses on closing the racial wealth gap. And people say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's the fact that there's a 90% there's a wealth gap between black families and white families inside of this country, you know, hovering just almost just shy of a 10 to one wealth gap. And why does that matter? Well, one, I think there's an importance to understand that the reason that you have such a distinct wealth gap is not because one family or one group worked 10 times harder, right? That there are structural, systemic 
issues that have compounded the inequality that exists and the implications of what that means when you have a group or a family or a community that does not have a safety net or does not have assets that they can basically look at or that they can lean on. And so when people say, well, what does that mean or what we can do? I honestly look at the same way we looked at the work with 90 to zero is saying that we need to have an honest cross-sectoral understanding of what the challenge is, but then it needs to be compounded with an action plan. Then we have to think about what can then we all do in our work, in our homes, in our schools, in the things that we advocate for, to be able to address those dynamics in a way that they continue to show themselves. That's one of the core fundamental things that we can do within our society to make sure that we get it and that we're going to get it right. But, but, but we have to embrace this idea that if we aren't doing this together, if we aren't doing this collectively, if we all don't understand our, our role in figuring this problem out, then what we are going to do is we're just going to have to at some point deal with a much harder and a much more complex problem because every day we do not address it, it compounds and it gets more challenging. I know that you propose or you like the idea of truth and reconciliation. Tell us a little bit about that. How do you see that? I mean, we had the truth, well, not we, but South Africa had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to deal with their racist past and present. Um, How would that work here? Could it work here? Yeah, I, I think it absolutely can work here. And I think we need to give it a chance. And I think it would have to be something that would have to be tailored to our country, the same way that these processes have been tailored to other countries. But the reality is this is that when you look at these countries, uh, and I say countries because there have been over a dozen countries that have gone through truth and reconciliation commissions or gone through some form of processes where they can look at their deepest wounds and say, in order for us to move on, we've got to acknowledge some of our greatest pains, whether it's South Africa, Burundi, Rwanda, Northern Ireland, Germany, Colombia, Argentina, Chile, Canada, twice. Canada literally has gone through this process twice as a country. But it's an ability to be mature. It's an ability to be honest and reflective. It's an ability to say, being able to acknowledge our history does not make us weak. Actually, it makes us strong. It makes us mature. And so I I feel like it's important for the United States. It's important for our individual states. It's important for our organizations to be able to wrestle with its history and understand that with that, that gives us a path to understand how then do we move forward collectively. And our inability to do that Our inability to be able to be honest is something that is going to continue to eat at our souls. You know, I I think about it in context in this way, where Johns Hopkins University, my alma mater, just went through a process of actually uh, uh, taking a look at its history. And, And one of the things that it uncovered from that 
was that the story that we were all told about Johns Hopkins, about how he was a great abolitionist and that type of thing, isn't quite accurate. He was a slave owner, right? And, and I thought about what that meant for me and my journey, where I felt like now uh, my, my, my understanding of all these places that trained me and helped to educate me and the hypocrisy of them in many ways was now officially complete. Where I attended Johns Hopkins University and I now knew the history and the legacy of Johns Hopkins University where I was trained on military bases, places like Fort Hood and Fort Benning and Fort Bragg. Braxton Bragg, for example, was named, uh, Fort Bragg was named after Braxton Bragg, a Confederate general, a traitor and not a very good general at that. And I received a Rhodes Scholarship and I went to study at the University of Oxford, the Rhodes Scholarship named after Cecil Rhodes. Um, at a time, one of the, at the time, the wealthiest man in the world, but also a well-documented and virulent racist. And so I continue to think about the fact that I repeatedly have been trained at places that were either paid by or named after people that despised me, that did not see nor acknowledge my humanity, that did not see nor acknowledge the humanity of my ancestors. And what exactly does that mean? And it's important for people to understand the weight and the burden that people of color in this country continue to have to feel and are simply just being asked to smile through it and how functionally unfair that is. Our country, our jurisdictions, our homes should have the strength and the fortitude and the maturity to be able to wrestle with its past and to know that we're not doing it to play gotcha. We're not doing it to play I told you so, but we're doing it because it's not just the right thing to do, but it's the humane thing to do. It's the godly thing to do. It's the honest thing to do. Because unless we are able to do that and change our stories, unless we're able to do that and change our narratives, unless we're able to do that and change the educational framework that we have for our children and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, then we will continue being able to perpetuate an incredibly damaging lie and how that does not just hurt one group, how actually that eats at all of us. You know, I often with my white brothers and sisters, they don't see what you just said, that racism eats away at their spirits and their souls, that, you know, they tend to see it as an out of their body kind of thing. It's, it's, it's a problem for black people, which it is, but, it's a problem for white people too. It's a problem for all of us. It's a problem for, it's a, it's a problem for all of us because um, we see how it manifests itself and shows itself in, in, a, in a variety of different ways. It was one of the things, frankly, that I, I, I think we all saw last year where you know, we had this uh, you know, kind of the, the racial reckoning that took place after the, after the murder uh, on camera the murder of Mr. George Floyd, um, where 
we saw a man who was handcuffed face down on the ground and had his life taken from him. And it was one of these things where I think you saw how the demand for justice was quick and the demand for justice was swift, but also it was holistic. That it was not just about, oh, we need to fix policing. Because policing is one thing that absolutely has to be addressed and fixed within our society and the inequitable policing that takes place in our neighborhoods. Because the truth is, is that during that time with Mr. George Floyd, it wasn't just that we watched a grown man have his life taken away from him. It was about the fact that we also saw Mr. George Floyd's name being added to a much longer lineage of names, you know, to include Michael Brown and Philando Castile and Freddie Gray and Anthony Anderson and Chris Brown and Tyrone West and Tamir Rice and Laquan McDonald and Eric Gardner and Walter Scott and Sandra Bland and Breonna Taylor and Trayvon Martin and, 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 right? We continue to see this, but it wasn't just about policing. It was about what does it mean to actually demand true equitable existence in housing, true equitable existence in education, true equitable existence in employment, true equitable existence in transportation, true equitable existence in health, true equitable existence in support for our families. What does that mean? And what does that look like? And that's the conversation that I think has actually been incredibly empowering to see that conversation taking place. That, that we knew the response to this was not simply just going to be the elimination of no-knock warrants and chokeholds, right? That this has to be a holistic response in the way that we're talking about this idea of moving forward as a collective, moving forward as a people, moving forward as a country, moving forward as a global community. That's the power of what it is that I think what the demands were and what people were holding out, uh, not just measures of hope for, but really trying to make sure that the work matches the intensity of the need. It was always funny to me when uh, Barack Obama became our president and suddenly racism was over. You know, it's like, well, we're not a racist country. We don't have racist tendencies. There's no such thing as institutional racism in America. We have a black president. And, you know, anybody with, you know, who knows and understands racial issues was just like dumbfounded. We knew that after Barack, there would be more of the problems. And, and that, that I think we're, um, I think we are, when we think that, we, we misinterpret what racism is, right? That, that, that racism, you know, and, and I think there, there's, there's two things I think that are important to remember with that. Um, you know, I remember because I had people who were saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I, I, this is, I thought that the president of the United States, I thought having, you know, President Obama would lead us into a, a post, uh, a post, you know, racial America. 
And one thing I was saying to people is that, you know, I, I actually, I, I don't, I don't think that we have the same goal. We, we, I don't want us to live in a post-racial America. I want us to live in a post-racist America, right? Because there's a difference. And I, I want people, we all come from different backgrounds and different cultures. And I want us to know that those backgrounds are, 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 are things that, that we can be proud of and not be discriminated because of. That, that when we think about this, the, you know, the, the identity and the cultures and the fact that this country really is a beautiful melting pot of cultures, that's actually one of our greatest assets. One of the most beautiful things about this country and actually what makes this country remarkably unique is what other country has that same dynamic? Name a singular country that has in the same way that the US has it, where you have created this, this measure of a melting pot for people who come from all over the world with a true opportunity to build and to be part of, and to know that their story can and should be reflected and understood as part of this idea of an American dream, right? There's a beauty to this idea, this evolution, to this concept, at least that the United States pulls out, that I think instead of pushing back against that we as a nation have to understand, again, it's one of our greatest it's one of our greatest joys and our greatest assets. The second thing though, when we think about what it means for President Obama is that, you know, that I, I think we are minimizing racism when we think that it is just an act. So if a person says, well, I, you know, attending a white supremacist rally, that is a, that is, that is racism. Got it. Yes, it is. A person decides to wear a hood in the middle, that is a racist act. Yes, racist act. I got it. A person says the N-word, racist. Yes, racist act. But racism is not just an act. Racism is a system. It's a system that allows these kinds of disparities to take place and for us to just continue moving on. Right. And so when I think about that, when I think about uh, the fact that we have these type of disparities. When I think about the fact that, you know, right now, right now, um, when people say, well, a college degree is the key to, uh, you know, economic success. And the reality is that if you look at the data, it is true that a person with a college degree on average has, a, will earn about a million dollars more than someone who does not have a college degree. True. You know, it's also true though, is that a black college graduate has the same earning power and earning potential as a white high school dropout, right? Data. So racism is not just an act. Racism is a system. And that's why our ability to be as overt and intentional about not just saying I won't condone racist acts, but I won't condone racist systems has to be a part of that dialogue and part of that conversation as well. Those systems have to be identified, though, for some people, because they're folks who don't get that there is a structure in place that is um, that favors whites, that favors white people much more so than people of color. <clears throat> what would you do to change? I mean, what's an idea that we can all kind of get behind or work on our own selves to, um, to, to fix some of the problems here, to, to change some of the structures, some of the systems and the psychologies, I think, as you have, have said? Mm. Well, I, I think one is we all, we do have to come up with an approach where we are having a deeper sense of appreciation of how those things exist. Um, you know, where, 
where you know I have to understand and recognize the fact that that uh, that there is a male privilege that exists within our society. I have to understand and recognize the fact that there is a an American privilege that happens with my society. The fact that I'm an American citizen and there are people within our society who might not be, and there's a privilege that uh, that comes in that I that I I benefit from without realizing it or recognizing it, but that's real. That there is privilege that does come with certain things that for many of us, we had nothing to do with, right? Nor anything that we should be ashamed of. But there is a privilege that in a hierarchy that our society is still very much thriving on that we then first have to have to acknowledge. The second piece, though, is I think we have to be able to spend our time both educating ourselves on that, but then also being able to support some of the frameworks that exist that are actually helping to address it, whether it be organizations that are doing really good and important and powerful work to be able to address these issues, whether it be thinking about the lawmakers who we have and making sure that they are being thoughtful in the laws that they're pushing together and the laws that they are doing to both address issues and the laws that they are also also then proposing to push back against changes and other things that, that are gonna roll back supports. And whether it be the way we're thinking about the education of ourselves and our children and our family about what becomes important, our reading lists, our understanding of the fact that we all are still growing as human beings. I think all these things that are, are important for us to do, but it's important for us to do collectively. You know, we, 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 you know, we cannot be the, the, the four-year-old who's scared of the dark, right? Or the person who thinks that because they cover their eyes that what they're seeing in front of them is not there. That's not the way it works. You know, we have to be able to be honest and have the internal fortitude and strength to be able to attack and go after those things, those elements, those items that we know are our most scary and to know that, but the only way we move forward is to be able to attack those very things. You know, something that I am feeling, especially in the last 10 days is um, with the Derek Chauvin murder trial. Um, I can't watch it. I can't follow it. I mean, I definitely can't watch it. And, and, I, and I hear, you know, because I'm in radio news, I hear NPR's uh, reporting on it. But then I don't, I don't try and hear any more or see any more. I, I, I have to hear that because I'm in that milieu. I can't, I can't, I can't. I mean, it's hard for me to listen to that, to remember that, to hear those people who were witnesses and how they were crying because they couldn't do more. And I mean, it is, it is definitely re-traumatizing. It, 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 it is, it is, it's terribly re-traumatizing, re-traumatizing. It is also, um, it's something that when we talk about the things that we have to be able to do, to be able to think hard and think critically about making sure that progress actually happens, we have to be diligent to make sure that justice is served and prod and, 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 progress actually happens. You know, I, I, I think that sometimes the hardest conversations um, 
are the ones that we will choose not to have. And frankly, I think that's been one of the challenges of our larger society, right? Is that we've, um, we've shied away from the hard. Having to watch that video again, having to listen to the testimony of the eyewitnesses who have just been nothing short of extraordinary for this trial, their courage, their strength, listening to the testimony of the police officers, the police chief who even says, this is not our training. This is not what we do. This is not condoned. Listening to this is hard. Um, it's also imperative because I think what it also does is it continues to give us the strength and the motivation to know that the fight is not yet over and that we are fighting on behalf of Mr. George Floyd and the in many ways countless others, some whose names we know, some whose names we don't, who need us to stay diligent, who need us to push the ball further, who are looking at us and asking us uh, to do more to make sure this doesn't have to happen anymore. And we have to be able to answer them with a sense of, of certainty. I know you have President Biden's ear. What are, you, what are you saying to him? What are you telling him? What are you wanting from the administration? I, I think um, I have been so pleasantly, not surprised because frankly, I, I, I do. I, I know our president and I know our vice president and I know their hearts. Um, but I've been, I've been so encouraged by what we have seen because I think the thing that I would say to them, which we have said to them and will continue to say is, um, let's not forget the pain that people have been feeling, not just for this past year, but that people have been feeling for generations. That we have a moment right now to address it. We have a moment right now to be bold. We have a moment right now to go big. We have a moment right now where people feel like they're the things they have been pushing for and advocating for and sacrificing for have been completely upended. Where the rug has been pulled out from many of their feet. And now we have a unique opportunity to be able to address that with a sense of with a sense of compassion. And so I would just say with what you're gonna do next and the policies you push forward, continue to lead with a sense of compassion. Because when we do that, and with a sense of acknowledgement, right? Because when we do that, that actually puts us on a better way of being able to address the very human pain that people have been fearing, feeling for a very long time. Author Wes Moore talking with CPR's Joanne Allen for an event hosted by the Vail Symposium, focused on racism and addressing social unrest. When we come back, Claire Noble with the Vail Symposium fields some questions submitted during the event, which was recorded last Thursday as it streamed live. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you try to buy a gun in Colorado, will you have to go through a background check? How many gun shops are there in the state? And what exactly does open carry mean in Colorado? 
These are just some questions from listeners in the last few weeks, and you'll find the answers at CPR.org. The history of Colorado's gun laws, what's being proposed, 10 questions you asked about firearms and gun laws in Colorado, answered at CPR.org slash gun questions. We've been listening this hour to a conversation between CPR's Joanne Allen and Wes Moore, author and CEO of the nonprofit Robin Hood Foundation. They spoke about racism and poverty for the Vail Symposium last week during a live-streamed event which we recorded. As part of the event, Vail Symposium program manager Claire Noble fielded questions, including a question about changing laws that disproportionately affect people of color. What do you think about this concept that perhaps we should pare down our legal system, and maybe there's lots of things that shouldn't be illegal. I, I think it's a very localized conversation because also I think we have to remember that laws are a very localized conversation. You know, the laws, what we have in one area or in one state are going to be different across the board, unless you're talking about some of the, you know, some of the federal laws and something, you know, for example, how we think about Schedule A and Schedule B and all this kind of, and, and all, all those kind of, you know, uh, offenses. But there consistently has to be a diligence in the way that we are adapting what we have for society and the way that our society is then living their lives, right? This is where it becomes incredibly important for us not to be lazy. You know, we, we have to be thoughtful. We have to be able to adjust and to adapt. And you look at the fact that so many legal changes and law changes that happen within our society they happen because we have a citizenry that is diligent. They happen because we have a citizenry that pushes for measures of change. And then we have lawmakers who sometimes because listen to better angels and sometimes because they are, this is their best form way of job security, listen to the population and actually care what the population thinks. And so I think this becomes something that if we are pushing for law changes, whether it be an increase in certain areas or a decrease in certain areas, all that must be driven from the people. And so it means that the people must be diligent and thoughtful about what laws then exist and then be able to prompt and push our lawmakers to be able to respond accordingly. I want to circle back to something you said about demanding true equitable existence in various areas, health, education, employment. Is it possible that one of the reasons why we're seeing pushback, the rise of white nationalism, white supremacy, is because some people see this as zero sum. So they see if this group starts to get more, then I will necessarily get less. And there's, is there any way to frame this to explain that that is not necessarily the way it has to be? Yeah, you know, I, I think the idea and the fear that someone is going to take something from you um, is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a genuine fear. And frankly, it is the narrative that continues to be fanned and flamed. But the reality is this, is that by being able to create equitable pathways for people, by being able to remove the barriers that continue to stand in front of people that historically have had not just barriers, but multiple barriers continue to lay out for their economic development and otherwise, that's not zero sum. In fact, I would argue that what is zero sum is the system that we have in place now, right? What is zero sum is the fact that we continue to allow these type of disparities to exist and explode without any form of, 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 of corrective action or any thoughtful uh, frame of how we should be rethinking um, this because continuing to allow 
these type of discrepancies to live. And then questioning why the race turned out the way the race turned out is not just uh, you know un- unfair, it's offensive. And so I think that we do have to be able to control and adjust our frame and our narrative to show that actually the best way to protect your future is to make sure that the future of other people are protected. The best way to protect your, 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 your value and the value of the assets that you have is to make sure that the value of the assets that other people have are actually protected as well. You know, you, you look at the, you know, Citigroup just released a report that showed that the cost of economic inequality, racial economic inequality, over the past over the past two decades, that our nation has lost sixteen trillion dollars because of racial injustice and racial inequity. Our nation has lost that to our GDP. If you look at a report from the National Academy of Sciences talking about the cost of child poverty, for example, the cost of child poverty every single year is hovers between eight hundred billion and one point one trillion dollars a year. That's the cost to this country in lost productivity, increased incarceration, uh, all these things because of the, that's the cost of child poverty. So I I think the argument that I would make to people is this is not about uh, what's being taken or a reallocation. What actually this is, is this is giving our nation its best possible chance to be able to have the largest return that our nation can have. So when you're looking at, again, you know, a $16 trillion loss in GDP because of racial inequity, uh, you know, it does not take a, 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 a Nobel Prize winning economist to say, well, maybe what we should then do is address this issue that we can then potentially start getting back some of those gains that we continue to lose as a society because of the fact that we continue to uh, take on the brunt of not getting this right. In the last 24 hours, you made an announcement of an organization you were going to be co-chairing that's Serve USA Together. I'd like to just give you a moment to talk about that organization and what you plan on doing there. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I, I joined the military when I was 17 years old and, you know, literally I uh, say where I, I was, I was so young that my mother literally had to sign my paperwork because I wasn't old enough to sign it myself. Um, so I know the role that service plays in my life. I know the role that it played in my life. I know that some of the proudest moments of my life have not been when I was wearing jeans or a t-shirt, um, but they were when I was wearing the uniform of this country. And I'll always feel that way. I know the role that service played in helping to make me into the person that I am. I also know that people who are involved in service early are generally people who are involved in service for life. And so when I think about what that actually means, what I think about what that could actually do, if we could come up with a way of having our young people and our young at heart people who have the chance to serve in some way, shape or form. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it means serving in the military. It could mean serving in your society. It could mean working as a tutor. We, we have, you know, one thing I'm a big believer in is that we could have a, a, essentially a group, a whole army of people who are working to help rebuild communities after the destruction that COVID-19 has just caused. 
So if we could do this, if we could be thoughtful about this, if we could be, if we could really make service a part of our national DNA, if we could actually get this right and create true and real pathways for young people to be able to lead and live and serve, then why wouldn't we? And so that's, that's the initiative. And it's one of the reasons that I'm so proud to, uh, to be a part of it. We are just about out of time. And so I'd like to give you both, you know, the last words. We'll start with Joanne. Maybe leave on on a positive note. What are you optimistic about now and let's say over the course of the next year or so? You know, I was asking myself that because I was going to ask Wes, uh, does it feel to him as though we're moving backwards? You know, sometimes I feel like we're taking two steps backwards and then take one step forward, which means we're really not progressing. Uh, There's this idea that things are going to change and always get better. I don't always feel that. I want to be optimistic, but some days I'm just not. Some days I feel as though we're doomed. Wes, I know you're much more optimistic than, than that. But I, I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm just having a hard time in, in, with, with the way things are right now. Yeah. I wouldn't call myself a blind optimist. But what I would call myself is, is a student of history. And I think about it in context in this way. You know, we're having a conversation about uh, the murder trial of a police officer. And we'll see what happens with this trial. And I think that will be very important and very telling. But the reality is this, we are still in a country that we had Mr. George Floyd's for hundreds of years. And you know what there wasn't? A trial. We had these things happen. And you know, there never was accountability. We've had these things happen. And you know what there never was? an ability to have television cameras so we all could watch the trial. We've had these things happen. And you know what there never was? The largest protests in the history of this country taking place afterwards. So what gives me a sense of optimism, what gives me a sense of hope is the fact that we have seen really hard days, but we do get these glimmers of hope that we can hold on to. The fact that they, as as Dr. King said, that the moral arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice, but that's only because we continue to have the people who are pulling it that way. And I think about it in context of, you know, of of what it, you know, I I sometimes think about hypothetical conversations of uh, what it would be like to have a conversation with Harriet Tubman and explain to Harriet Tubman how difficult 2020 was and just watch her laugh at me. <laughs> you know, I, I'd love to one yeah. day sit down, you know, sit down with Shirley Chisholm, sit down with Paul Robeson yeah. and explain to them how difficult we've got it. And to watch them kind of just sit there and say, I know you've got it tough. We've seen hard, we've seen tough. And we've also seen absolute giants who have stepped up in the face of not just adversity, but knowing that every moment was a gift. And they were going to push for a better tomorrow. And frankly, a tomorrow, that, a tomorrow that they knew they would never see. But they did it for the hope of us. And so some of these days are hard. Some of these images are really difficult. 
some of them force you to question the amount of progress that we have actually had. But then also, we remember that the reason that we are even able to have that conversation about have we made progress or not is because there were people who saw things much harder than we did. And they were able to push for that progress. Thank you for reminding me of that. I mean, I, all I have to do is just think about my parents or, you know, aunts and uncles and the stuff they went through. They, you know, it's a piece of cake for me to be alive right now compared to them. So thank you for giving me some optimism, Wes. <laughs> Author and CEO Wes Moore talking with CPR's Joanne Allen and Claire Noble, program manager for the Vail Symposium, which hosted this discussion about poverty and racism in America. We'll have a link to the entire conversation and video stream at CPR.org. Thank you for joining us today for this special presentation from Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.